This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am really grateful. I am really grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of really interesting people, really accomplished people in their respective craft, people that come in goodwill, in good faith. It is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And remember, I say this every time, subscribe or follow depending on your app and leave us a rating. But especially if you get a chance to write a review on Apple or one of the major apps, really does help us. It All of it helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation. Like the one I am very excited to be having today with Tim Alberta. Tim Alberta is a staff writer for The Atlantic and the former chief political correspondent for Politico. And he's written for dozens of other publications, including The Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, and Vanity Fair. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, American Carnage, on the front lines. Just like clockwork, Charles Mingus III always <laughs> wants to participate in these conversations. Um, Mine's asleep on the couch over here, so I, as long as the UPS guy doesn't come. <laughs> that must be it. I think we're getting some packages, but... Uh, um, so uh, we'll just let him uh, we'll let him chime in here and there if everybody's okay with that. Um, Tim is the author of the New York Times bestseller American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump and the newly released The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, which we'll be discussing today. He co-moderated the final Democratic presidential debate of 2019 and frequently appears as a commentator on television programs in the U.S. and around the world. But today we get to have him a talk of politics and religion without killing each other. So speaking of politics and religion, you got to be feeling pretty good about your Detroit Lions, huh? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I was until Thanksgiving. Yeah, I was until Thanksgiving. You know, the, the thing is, look, like at this stage in the season to be eight and three and, you know, uh, really prohibitive as the front runner to win the division you know i you you take it yeah 100 times out of 100 and, and we've never even won the division yeah since they since they you know became the nfc north we've never won it that being said uh the last three weeks a lot of red flags a lot of uh a lot of weaknesses exposed and if the coaching staff doesn't make some adjustments then i think we're going to be uh probably one and done in the playoffs but the overall trajectory of the franchise is terrific yeah. and i'm happy with that but i started to get a little greedy you know like when your team starts eight and two, eight and two yeah. you start you start having dreams about the super bowl and uh I don't think they're quite there yet. Yeah. Well, I'm a diehard Mets fan and college football. I root for Auburn. So my heart's broken every year, you know, and especially years like this year with the Mets, you know, it's it has so much promise, you know, and I fall for it every damn time. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, you know, you keep coming back for more keep coming back for right? more ever Just, since the, the days of, of Doak Walker and Billy Sims and <laughs> Barry Sanders. Oh, <laughs> you probably grew up on Barry Sanders, right? I, I, so Barry Sanders was probably my first love. Um, I mean, I, you know, be, the, we moved to Michigan. I was born in New York. We moved to Michigan in 89, which is the year that they drafted Barry. So, and I would have been three years old at the time. And, uh, and that was like my, some of my very first memories are of like my brothers and my dad, like screaming at the television as Barry would make 
some gravity-defying maneuver. And so, oh, yeah, like, I mean, I grew up just obsessed with bears. That's awesome. You know, I was reading up about your dad, and he went to the same high school that my sister-in-law uh, graduated from, uh, Mawa, New Jersey. That, I guess that's where your parents met, right? No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah both my parents went to Mawa. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's something to be said. If, for folks who aren't really sports fans, there is something... I don't mean to make too much of this, but I believe it's transcendent. I think it was Bob Costas who once said that when I couldn't talk about anything else with my father, I could still talk about baseball. Um, and I always feel like I, I watch the Mets uh, religiously, so to speak. Um, but it, it always feels in a way like those who've uh, gone before me, uh, my Uncle Jerry, my grandfather, who I called Zayda, it, it feels in a little way like they're, they're in the room with me, watching a game with me. So I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, yeah, there's something, yeah, and the generational component of it, yeah. right, being able to, you know, share those memories with your kids that you had with your dad and, you know, he had with his dad, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's something very special about it. <laughs> Speaking of it, because I want to take a stab in the dark at something here, I was wondering if your kids are named after your favorite president, your favorite apologist, and your favorite writer. Ha! No, uh, no, although... Uh, you got the apologist okay. right because it's spelled with L E W I S. It is yes, yes. So yes, we did name him after C S Lewis. Uh, but the other two, we had some other uh, other inspiration for. Okay, uh, which is but this is new ground on a on a podcast talking <laughs> talking talking kids names. Yeah. Um. Uh. No. Um. Although I did I did make a strong case to name one of my sons Calvin. For Calvin Johnson. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, and my my wife shot that one down. So what did they call him? Me- Megatron or something? Uh, Cal- Me- yeah, that was his nickname. Yeah. <laughs> we could have just named him Megatron. There you go. I guess there's I, hope yet. Th- that that yeah, there's yeah, right. We just need to have a few more. You know. <laughs> I was thinking more in terms of you. you I think Doke is going to make a comeback. That. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a harder that's a harder sell these days. You know, these kids now they they're all uh, they're they've all got names. It, like it's funny. We my kids are you know like all elementary school age, and uh, boy, there's not a like a Tom or a Bill or a Joe like in any of these classes. Yeah. it's just I, and I'm not being like old man shakes fist at cloud. I'm just I'm actually I'm genuinely fascinated by it, including my kids. My kids have sort of different names. So it's just interesting how like my generation doesn't want to name their kid anything, you know, traditional. I'm just thinking now, I bet you could make a case for Lane, L A Y N E for Bobby Lane. I think as soon as she looked up the history, <laughs> she would know, my wife would know. Bobby Lane was not a uh an exemplary citizen. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know his yeah, story. Was, I just know he, I, I was looking up, uh, I was get, brushing up on my Lions history and that, that name comes up a lot. Yeah. So. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was, he was apparently quite a character. Oh, was, and, um, Oh wait, was oh he, yeah. There are, there are some legendary stories about was him. Was he one of the guys that got, uh, got suspended for a year, like in the early sixties? Am I remembering this right? He, I think so. He got, there, there were a few different run-ins with, Bobby Lane, uh, as far as the league, as far as the law, as far as his other teammates. And like he, yeah, he was one of these guys who apparently was like, you know, beer, beers and cigarettes at halftime and was like, you know, uh, that, like they didn't do Gatorade back then. Yeah. You know, they had a, they had a, they had a very different uh, health regimen. Um, but yeah, he's, he's sort of a reviled figure in, 
and some of this has kind of taken on a life of its own, but like there's this whole thing about the curse of Bobby Lane, how he cursed the Lions when they traded oh. him and they haven't won since. I think it's nonsense. I think it's made up. But like there's a there's a whole complicated history there with Bobby Lane. So anyway, long story <laughs> short, I don't think we'd be naming one of my children. I, so t- the way you describe him, I don't know if he had a direct line to God with uh, with prayers for that sort of thing. I think the Billy Goat maybe, you know, with the Cubs had a had a better shot. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. So, on, on a more serious note, uh, I was wondering if you you really uh, candid uh, and you you get very personal in the book. It's obviously like just such some of the best reporting I've read in a long time. Uh, but I was wondering if doing that kind of work, if you a little background, by the way, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. But you grew up. You know, your dad's pastor and grew up uh, in a evangelical church. Do you still consider yourself an evangelical? And is that the kind of thing you discuss with your dad? You know, so my dad and I had an awesome relationship. uh, And we could talk about just about anything, um, sports, theology, politics. Um, And we had some pretty good disagreements, but they were always healthy, respectful disagreements. Um, You know, I think the term evangelical meant more to him than it's ever meant to me. And I think that that's a generational thing. Um, You know, there was really a sort of, there, there was an evangelical moment and really a feeling of of movement uh, kind of coming out of the 50s into the 60s, post-World War II, Billy Graham, uh, kind of you have sort of some of the old labels are falling by the wayside a little bit. And you've got a, a lot of Christians now sort of amalgamating under this kind of loosely defined thing of evangelicalism. Um, and I think for, you know, people like my dad, that was important to them that like he wasn't just a Christian. He was an evangelical Christian, which meant, I think in so many ways that, you know, that he took his faith really seriously, that he wasn't, you know, that his Christianity was not a casual thing to be kind of picked up and put down and slotted into schedules, but that it was who he was at his core of his identity. Um, And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't differentiate myself in in terms of what I just said, but I I guess where I do diverge, and I think a lot of folks uh, that I've met who are you know in my rough age range think of this the same way. We I, I use this phrase in the book. I say that we're sort of the children of the moral majority, mm. and I think for a lot of us who, you know, our parents were wrapped up in that movement and in the label. And in, I think a lot of us have seen how some of that got hijacked and corrupted and turned into something else. And, you know, there's just, for me, a simplicity in saying, like, I'm just, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah. I'm a, you know... And I don't know that I need to attach. Matter of fact, I do know that I don't need to attach anything more to it, just because it feels superfluous. Um, that's not to say that uh, I have a. I don't take any issue necessarily with people who do continue to identify as evangelical. I, I know lots of them, and they have 
their heart in the right place. Um, but I do get concerned that the unbelieving world hears that label, they hear that word, and they associate something altogether different with it than what these folks mean when they go by it. And if the goal of the evangelical is to evangelize, right, there's a verb in there, like you're supposed to be evangelizing. I think it's very hard to evangelize to someone who's not a believer when they hear the word evangelical because they have... they attach some pretty rotten things to that word, and and I don't really blame them. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question, but no, not necessarily. If if somebody describes me that way, I'm not going to fight them on it. It's the tradition I grew up in, and uh, I certainly identify with that tradition. But uh, just plain old follower of Jesus is good enough for me. Yeah, no, it makes sense because it gets to the heart and the meaning of it. And frankly, I'm I'm ambivalent about seeding words like good words because it's become I, i've noticed um i started noticing it i became a christian around two that late 2000 around this time of year maybe octoberish of 2000 um and i remember when uh, sarah palin came on the scene uh, and i started hearing words like patriot and freedom in a different way and then eventually i started thinking specifically of evangelical in a different way i proudly embraced uh, my newfound theological moorings or identity as a, as an evangelical. So I hesitate to cede that word to the kinds of, uh, you know, the kinds of hucksters that you describe at great length in the book. So I, I would say I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, but I, I have a, I have a different question. But before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money, (laughs) Uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me. He knows my family. And I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change up from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. You dealt with two figures that that have um, had an impact in my life in two very different ways. Robbie Zacharias, I was uh, I, I was introduced to his work before I became a Christian, and then uh, he, he was arguably a part of that journey that led me, uh, 
as as he would describe, he he cleared a lot of the brush for me, having grown up as an observant Jew, for me to be able to finally, after six months of intense study and reading and thinking, to be able to read the New Testament and be powerfully compelled by starting with Jesus's teachings, right, right from Matthew five, uh, but then eventually getting through, getting to a book like James, which was written directly for a guy like me, to the you know the twelve tribes. Um, I felt and dealt with some things, but. Uh, and then eventually I got to know Ravi and I'm still friends uh, with uh, one of his kids. Um, and then, but I'm, I also live in the Valley where John MacArthur has a great deal of influence. It's where Masters University is. Uh, so a lot of the churches around here are basically MacArthurian churches. Um, and you cover both Ravi and Johnny Mac in the book. Um, Mike, I, I know that when stuff came out about Ravi in particular, I'm still working through the implications of that. I'm still grappling with certain theological convictions I have congealed uh, as, as sort of moorings of my faith. And I've had to question basically everything, um, you, you know, and part of it is my own, I don't know, part of it is my own uh, proclivity to idolize a guy like that. He, he wasn't like he, I considered him a mentor, but was he even more than that? Did I just defer to his teachings? So I don't know, I'll, kind of a little bit of background on me, but I, all that to ask you, are there aspects of your own theology or certain beliefs that, that are part of um, your faith that you've questioned or reconsidered? Yeah. Well, boy, I mean, that's, that's a, Really interesting way into the question when thinking about Ravi, because everything you just described is certainly how I felt and how I continue to feel. Um, you know, my wife grew up a Hindu, and uh, when she gave her life to Jesus, uh, there were two primary influences and one was my dad and the other was Ravi Zacharias. Mm. And, um, she'd read all of his books and watched all of his videos as had I, uh, we went to see him in person, um, a couple of times and that was a, just a gut punch, right? It, it was not just a gut punch. It was almost a, it was a, it was a gut punch. Like you felt that 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 you had in a bad dream like it wasn't real because we do as mortal men of of flesh and blood just we put these people on pedestals even the and I write about this in the book like even somebody like me who I sort of pride myself on being like a kind of a hard-nosed you know tough-minded, permanently skeptical reporter. Um, I remember seeing the initial scuttlebutt about Ravi before the big stuff broke out. This was when Ravi was still alive. And yeah, about a year the, before he died, there was a thing, the couple yeah. up in Toronto or something. Yes, Lori, Lorianne Thompson, I believe her yeah. name was, um, and who'd been basically accusing him of soliciting photos and grooming her and, and, and kind of, and then he, uh, counter, he sued, he countersued, I think. And the details are a little bit fuzzy to me, but, but I just remember when all that came out 
thinking, oh, this is awful. Like, how 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 could somebody try to take down Ravi Zacharias like this? Like, it didn't even cross my mind, in other words, that it could have been true. Yeah. Because he was so brilliant and because he was so eloquent, so articulate, uh, so persuasive. And yet, as we come to find out when all of the dust had settled from the various investigations, it was exactly that brilliance and that eloquence and that ability to persuade that made him such a dangerous predator. And we're shocked by this, but we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? The, 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 the devil masquerades as an angel of light. And, and I just don't know. Um, I don't know to your question if there are specific, like I've wrestled, over the years with a lot of different elements of kind of institutional Christianity, as it were. I don't know that I've faced serious theological crises of any real kind. Like my, my faith itself and my, you know, my, my understanding of scripture and my walk with the Lord has been pretty darn stable. And I don't say that lightly. And I, I, and I don't say it without, real gratitude. Um, but I think a lot of the attachments to Christianity, a lot of the sort of sub identities and a lot of the, those proclivities that you were, and I were just describing, um, a lot of the loyalties that you feel that those are the things that I've wrestled with. And, and to be completely honest with you, um, a big part of my writing the book was the kind of exercise some of that because there was a I, I think for most of my life my adult life my my life as a journalist I had really gone out of my way to avoid criticizing the church criticizing organized religion um I was pretty like reflexively defensive of the evangelical movement even when I could see that things were very wrong and um I think there was just a tribal tendency there that that I was that was getting the better of me for a long time and um and I think that's probably been my biggest struggle is I say late in the book that I feel at times in writing this that I was sort of wrestling with my dad's ghost trying to trying to say what is so obvious and so self-evident and so true to me that I had spent a long time just willfully ignoring. Yeah. So before I, I, I do want to get more into your background and, and the nature of the book is, is really interesting because you are entering a land that you're a native of. So I, I want to talk about that in a second. But first, I'm curious if being a uh, a Christian, identifying as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, as you say, did you ever face any hostility from your colleagues, uh, from other journalists or other colleagues that, that you've worked with? You know, it's funny because I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine, John Ward, um, who is a top-rate journalist himself. And uh, and John is a Christian, committed Christian, who has kind of gone through the ringer in his own faith journey a little bit. And he wrote, a, he wrote a book about it called Testimony. Uh, and John and I were kind of comparing notes on this. Like, never, never any, like, outward hostility. 
but definitely a sense of estrangement a little bit. Um, mm. I think, I think it's just you know the world of of elite media is not a natural fit for. Like I, I remember writing this a few years ago, and I got a lot of feedback on it. Uh, pe- mostly, people just surprised that I wrote it. But I said, like, in all the major newsrooms I've worked in, and you know, and and the people I've competed with from other newsrooms, and just swimming in these waters for a long time, like, I think I could count on like a, one hand, like the number of people who like own a gun, or the number of people who go to church on Sunday mornings. There's just like some real, like, obvious cultural and class divisions that exist in my industry and uh i don't know that i'm necessarily well qualified to diagnose why that is but it's just kind of it's just a reality of things and i wouldn't say that i felt any hostility or any uh, or even uh, like you know unwelcoming attitudes but but there's just definitely a bit of like a almost curiosity at times like a little bit of a zoo animal thing where you're just people people are like huh that's eh, no kidding like you really people like you do exist that's yeah you know but 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 again like i i view that as an opportunity i i and i hope we all would in our different walks of life um to uh to try to be distinct and to try and own that distinctiveness and to uh not conform to the patterns of this world right yeah yeah it's, fu- it's funny the way you put that because I, that's largely been my experience. I, uh, I, I, deal, I live in Southern California, deal a lot with uh, folks in the entertainment industry. And there have been a couple times where it got heated, but it got heated for all the wrong reasons. You know, one, one time I was at this uh, poker game with a bunch of friends from the industry and uh, it was getting to midnight or whatever. And I, hey, sorry, guys, we're going to church and I got to take off and – as soon as I said church, the, the lady I was sitting next to, she just like, she sits up in her chair. She's like, why do all you people, <laughs> like, wait, wait, first of all, you, you kind of lost me at all you people, but she got onto this screed about Trump. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's kind of deconstruct your assumptions here. Um, but that would be, the, the, the interactions that went negative, it went negative for uh, for reasons that weren't well-founded, but I was, I was happy. I'm always happy to get, maybe it's my training from, you know, from Ravi and, and other reading and studying I've done as an apologist, but I'm always happy to get into that conversation because more often than not, um, it is an opportunity if you go about it in the right way, in a sort of curious way, inquisitive way, a, a way in good faith and goodwill, um, where you can build that relationship. I'm not like a, I guess if I am an evangelist, I, I'm not a, a transactional evangelist where I'm trying to close the deal. Uh, I think, you know, if anybody's closing the deal, God's doing that work, you know? <laughs> um, hmm. Whereas it, maybe I can be in a relationship with him and I'm part of that larger set of ingredients that God's using for the bigger recipe, you know? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm reminded when you just said that my, uh, my dad used to say that we're in sales, not management. Uh, and you know, that's, that's, that's a, it's a funny way to put it, but it's also, I think a helpful way to put it because, you know, you're, I think you're selling every day, whether you realize it or not. Um, you know, are, are you. Do you talk in a way? Do you behave in a way? Do you treat your spouse in a way? Do you treat your neighbor in a way? Do you treat your children in a way? Do you treat your enemies in a way? 
that reflects Jesus and that and, and that um, and that echoes with a with a with a distinctiveness that seems at once familiar but altogether alien and you know that is that is evangelizing i think there are often uh, people who are uneasy with the idea of being an evangelist of uh, of kind of um being very vocal trying to proselytize or whatever but I think that sort of misses the point, right? Like the, there, there really is something to this idea of like, you know, by their fruit, you will know them. And um, we have to, now more than ever, it seems to me, in a culture that is more, I don't want to just say more hostile to Christianity because that seems like it's getting into the persecution space, which I don't really want to get into. But I think at the very least, a, a culture that is... Um, uh, sort of less, less, uh, less engaged with Christian virtue, with Christian doctrine than you know probably at any time in this country's history. Um, people are highly suspicious of the church, and not without reason. And I don't know that we win them back by like getting in their face and wagging a finger and telling them, you know, what Exodus twenty has to say uh my sense is that the way that that tide starts to turn is by modeling and by you know by 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 selling without the hard sale if yeah. if if that makes sense it's an interesting you bring up a really interesting point because i've been kind of grappling with this for a long time uh to answer your question do i reflect Jesus. I'm reminded of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, I forgot the name of it, but it's a Velasquez painting uh, and it's Christ on the cross. And there's something about the background that he got a darker black color as the background that I'd ever seen, certainly in in painting. Um, So it makes the Christ figure luminescent, almost jump off the canvas. So my fear is that I reflect the black background more so than the Christ figure that's jumping off the canvas. Um, but the, the, what I, what I grapple with in, in what you're talking about there is I'm, I've been a part of a few different Christian communities. My kids went to a Christian school. We were part of Grace Baptist, one of the Johnny Mac influenced churches, uh, for the better part of a decade. And a lot of the testimony or a lot of the witness, um, looked a lot like, Hey, um, our kids are good looking. They're getting straight A's. My teeth are white. My wife is gorgeous. That's all the proof you need to know that I got it right. And you better become a Christian. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you know the, that, that, that approach to, uh, to evangelism. So I, I become dubious when I see that sort of thing kicking into gear because, you know, frankly, a lot more often than not, it's bullshit. So speaking of which, (laughs) that's good transition. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you grew up in the church, so I'd love for you to fill in some of the blanks there. I mean, the way I was thinking of it is like you, you, you are a citizen of that sort of subculture. Whereas I came in, I didn't become a Christian until I was 29 years old. So I always felt like a little bit of an alien, Um, but you speak the language fluently, you know, that world, you, those are your people. So I was curious 
in the process of writing your book, I'd love for you to describe what it was like to actually go to the American Restoration Tour or the Reawaken America Tour, these events that are like kind of like a version of what you grew up in, but sort of through the looking glass, Alice through the looking glass kind of a thing. Is that fair to say or, or am I being too yeah, I mean, it? Uh, yeah, it's definitely fair to say. I mean, honestly, how did I feel? I felt sad for the most part um, because those things you're describing, I mean – it's it's just it's such a cheap facsimile of what Christ offers, which is a kingdom that is his own citizenship in that kingdom and a rejection of these earthly tribal identities that are fleeting and ultimately inconsequential um, and at so many of these events, so many of these churches spend time with so many of these pastors and, and, and you know, megachurch leader types. You know, it's just like the, the, the main thing is no longer the main thing. Uh, there is so much, I would just say, obsession. I mean, it's not even like... The, the, the sideshow is now center stage. There's so much obsession with with you know the culture in decline and the country falling apart and you know what the left is doing to your kids in the schools and and like again it is perfectly fine to want the best for your family for your country uh to see uh your community flourish and be safe and that's fine right there's nothing wrong with it but you know, we're told repeatedly through the, throughout the Gospels that when those things are secondary, you can love them even better, right? Um, and, and I think the sadness I'm describing comes from this sort of inversion of priorities, this, this willful distortion of the Gospel that suits a political agenda that suits a cultural agenda um, that we're not called to pursue. In other words, so often it feels as though we think about our faith identity through the lens of our political identity, through the lens of our cultural identity, through the lens of our national identity. When we are called unambiguously to do the exact opposite that we're supposed to be examining all all ev everything else uh that matters to us our families our our favorite teams our our colleges our jobs you know our our country um we are supposed to be looking at all of those identities through the lens of our belief in jesus christ um all because because everything else is is subservient and, and secondary, um, you know. One of the things that Jesus talks about just incessantly throughout the Gospels is this idea of a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God. He uses those terms interchangeably, and he doesn't talk about it like it's some abstract idea. 
No, he talks about it like it's a real place. Yeah. A physical community with people and 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 structures and and you know rules and 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 um requirements and you know it sounds a lot like a country right it sounds like a a a place and he says you are a citizen of that place if you follow me and everything else has to be secondary so i think you know just to return to the sadness i mean i felt a lot of emotions throughout the reporting of all this um at times anger, at times disgust, at times just deep disillusionment. But I think just sadness at the end of the day because there are so many things in this world that just ultimately do not matter. And um, the idea, you know, my dad used to say that God doesn't bite his fingernails. It was one of my favorite (laughs) little quips that he used to deploy. And... It's like the idea that we should be as Christians that we, like we that, that we would take such a small view of God that we need to be like um you, you, you know crying out and, and and screaming and kicking and and tantruming and and glomming onto like these political or these cultural figures to try and save us because we're under siege and the left is and the enemies are at the gates and they're coming for us and like like how small is your theology and that's i guess that's that's the prevailing thing is it's just it's sad yeah yeah it's uh it's funny that you put it that way because i think of uh god doesn't bite his fingernails like he's not he's not anxious about how this is working out and yet our there's a sort of idolatry i don't even know if that's the right word for it but um that we're trying to force history to come out the way we want it to, as opposed to submitting to the story that's being played out that we're a part of, you know, and participating in the way that we're uniquely called to participate in it. Um, I think it was new. I might be getting the wrong author here, but it was Newbigin who talked about making history come out just as we want it. Just right. Um, You know, when you talk of the sadness, you, you did mention in the acknowledgments a, a dear friend of yours who's come to depression earlier this year, and it made me wonder if, in doing this work, it how's how's your mental health? How, has it challenged, or in what ways did it affect your own mental health? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it, it hasn't affected it negatively, and I feared that it would. To be quite candid, um, you know. There were some days early on in this journey, because I spent about four years on this book, more or less, and uh, there were some days early on where I really questioned what I was getting myself into, because... <laughs> I would you imagine know, listen, certain situations that you're in, you're like, how did I get here? <laughs> I mean, and this is the thing, man, like, listen, I had just come off of, you know, four years of intense, four years of covering Trump. And writing this book about uh, Trump's takeover the Republican Party, and you know, and January sixth, and like I got, I got, I there was a good long stretch there where I was getting you know a couple death threats a week, and like it was just, uh, it was tough, it was ugly, and it was really, um, and 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 I made the decision to kind of move away from politics as a full time thing in part because it had been so dark and so ugly, and I just needed. To, to see what else was out there for me. And so, 
naturally, I transition into reporting on the crack up of American Christianity, which in a lot of ways is much darker than anything related to electoral politics, right? Because I think the eternal implications and the, uh, the, the, the eternal significance is, is just immeasurably more. So I worried about that at, at, at the front, but I gotta say, Corey, I, I've um, the whole process has definitely drawn me closer to Jesus, and I've I've been able to lean on him in ways that maybe I didn't ever really lean on him before. Um, so maybe my faith is stronger. Maybe I've just become maybe my relationship with him has become more intimate. But like I have, I've looking back on the whole process, because listen, I've had friends and family and colleagues now who have read some of the opening chapters or the, and they've been like, are are you okay? Right. Like wellness, wellness check kind of thing. Yeah. And looking back on it all now in retrospect, I'm almost sort of surprised that I didn't suffer some sort of like breakdown along the way, but I was also you know, spending every day, you know, in scripture and in prayer and making a really concerted effort to like, uh, to, 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 to do this in the way that the Lord wanted me to do it, I guess. And so, and that, that made all the difference, I think. It sounds like your upbringing really did help with that. Like having the mom and dad that you did having, uh, being taught discernment, um, you know, having the family that you did, like, it just sounds like a lot of your upbringing uh, and a lot of your life has given you a more well-grounded spiritual formation to be able to enter into those environments. Because I I was curious, like, I was curious if I entered into the reawakened America, it just feels like a a circus in all the wrong kinds of ways. But if I were to enter into that at some point, I, I wonder if my, um, uh, what is it called? Fight or flight kicks into gear, you know? Yeah. And the switch would just be flipped. So it sounds like your spiritual formation really helped you to deal with that in kind of a even keeled way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, my parents are, really you know my dad's gone now he's 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 with the lord but you know my parents are serious serious theological people and um and i think i you know that made an impression even when i didn't realize it was making an impression um i think understanding how to i think understanding Good theology is probably the key to understanding bad theology, mm. right? And like, and, and for me, um, you know, it's, it's like C.S. Lewis said, you know, we know what a, uh, we know that we know that a line is curved. We know that a, we know that a line is crooked because we have seen a straight line, right? Like, there, so there's something to that, like to being able to walk into the Reawaken America tour. And hear somebody screaming vulgarities, and then a moment later for everybody to have their hands in the air praying and singing <laughs> hymns, where you look around and you're like, huh, somewhere deep in your spirit, you just know 
this is not right. Um, and you know, that's, uh, so I'm really grateful for that because I, I do, I do think some of that came from my upbringing. Uh, at the same time, I think some of it probably just came from those years of covering Trump and, and seeing, because there are some real uncanny parallels here between sort of the implosion of our politics, specifically of the Republican party and, and, and Trump's, um, kind of laying waste to the institution of republicanism. I think that has in many ways kind of run parallel to what's happened inside the church. And, um, and I think kind of sifting through the wreckage of one probably helped prepare me for the other. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, another thing I was really curious about was your reporting is just remarkable. I, so first of all, I'm curious just you know, in your profession, how you got interviews with the likes of Robert Jeffress or Jerry Falwell Jr. And two is, does it get harder? I mean, you you published that book that was pretty prominent about Trump a, a few years ago. Uh, I'm wondering if it just, you know, or the article. It's like, speaking of which, like the CNN article, by the way, I put in a good word. I, I, I want to get the CNN article as one of the Sydney Awards, uh, you know, the David Brooks uh, favorite pieces, pieces of writing of the year. <laughs> Um, but like, how do you get not only those interviews, but how do you get your subjects to open up like they do? And then also, it does is it getting harder the more prominent some of your work gets? Well, I suppose it will. I mean, it yeah, and it probably has. It just means I have to work that much harder, which uh, you know that's that's kind of the fun in my <laughs> line of work. Is like I don't know. I enjoy the chase of having if somebody says no and they don't want to talk to you, there are a lot of ways you can get around that. And yeah. there are a lot of ways that you can kind of maneuver. And I'm not talking about anything like unethical or like improper. I just mean like strategically where you can kind of apply some pressure to people who otherwise wouldn't want to talk. And then, okay, they'll talk, but just strictly off the record. Okay. They'll talk, but you have to keep these things on background. Okay, you can you can use this one thing from me. Well, the next thing you know, you're recording for hours and it's all on the record. Like there are just ways to kind of I think at the end of the day, Corey, one of the constants that I've noticed in my career is that um number 1, everybody feels misunderstood. Everybody in the world. If everybody feels misunderstood. So, if you can give somebody the assurance that you're going to listen to them and that you're going to be treat them fairly, which, listen, I, I mean, I don't always portray people in a flattering light, but I don't think I'm unfair to anyone. Um, if if someone is saying or doing crazy things, I will let that come through in my writing. But uh, I don't take cheap shots at people. Um, so ultimately, that's where your reputation in my industry really matters. And when I'm approaching people who are really reticent to talk to journalists, usually I can get them to talk to me because they'll look at my body of work, they'll ask around, and, you know, my reputation's pretty good. And, um, uh, you know, I offer them a very transparent view of the process as far as how my reporting works and, and what, uh, you know, what things are fair game and what things uh, they can do to sort of uh, feel more at ease and... And so we kind of work through that in a really transparent way. And 
I don't, you know, if, if I'm going to take a sledgehammer to somebody, they know about it ahead of time. I mean, I had hours of conversations with Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, before the book went to print because, you know, I, it's important to me that people know ahead of time what's going to come out. So I guess all that's just to say that, like, it's not, I'm not the, I'm far from the, uh, the smartest guy working in journalism. Like, I, you know, uh, I don't think that a lot of this is like, um, requires a PhD. It's just, you know, it's people skills and it's understanding relationships and it's ethics and knowing, you know, uh, not to be exploitative and not to take advantage of people. Uh, you know, if you treat, if you tell the truth and you treat people fairly, you tend to go a long way. Yeah, that's fair. I would, I would imagine the, um, the personal encounters outside of your work as a, as a writer have to be more challenging. Like, um, Robert Costa in his, uh, in his, a piece on Sunday morning shared this that that's uh, that you relate early in the book. Some you know folks at your dad's funeral you know came up to you uh, and gave you crap about basically not towing the company line. Uh, and, and I'm guessing a lot of those folks haven't even read your work. They just heard more generally. Oh well, he's you know he's talking crap about Trump kind of a thing. I would imagine that's harder than um, you know the more in depth conversations you have with uh, high profile public figures like that. Yeah, it is. I mean, especially, look, I don't lay all this at like the Trump doorstep. In fact, I've gone out of my way and a lot of what I've written over the years to try and explain that Trump is really just like a byproduct of all these other things that have happened. And he was kind of a creation of the culture gone crazy. But like, yeah, the Trump era, you know, really did bring a lot of this to the surface. And, you know, you've got people who you've known like your entire life who will just say like, well, you're a liar. Like, I don't, I don't believe you. I, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the deep state or you're fake news. <laughs> and I believe, I believe Trump. And it's like, okay, like about the election, for example, right? Like I've studied election law in all 50 States. I mean, and quite literally studied it like deeply in like the 10 battleground States that matter. Like I know election law, front and back. I've spent time in all these states at the county recorders with the secretary of state's offices at the ballot processing facilities. Like I know how all this stuff works. I've also spent, you know, years talking with the people around Trump, uh, his legal people, his political strategists, his, you know, people in the West Wing. I've sat in the Oval Office with Trump and talked with him. Like I like so. But somebody so I can have all that experience. But somebody who I grew up with, We'll just say, well, no, 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 I, 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 uh, I don't believe you. I, <laughs> I believe, tr I believe Trump, or yeah. I believe Michael Flynn, or I believe Mike Lindell, or I believe, um, you know, Jenna Ellis, or like these people who are self-evidently full of it, right? And and now some of them are, you know, under, you know, admitted. Ad admitted liars under oath. Uh, right. in, in part Ellis, of it. Yeah. 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 But, but because I'm critical of Trump or because I work for a magazine that has been critical of Trump, like you're willing to throw away decades of kind of goodwill and of credibility and knowing me personally for these people or for this guy more specifically who thinks that you're a rube, by the way. Think, right, you know, like th that's what's been pretty amazing to me. I, I was curious. Do you think? Do you think the uh, I forgot her name, pa Paula Whites or Ralph Reeds 
or Donald Trump for that matter, do you think they ever look at each other and acknowledge the hustle, like kind of take pride and, and, and do a victory dance like, hey, we got over on these suckers or or <laughs> are they like method hucksters? Do they stay in character all the time? No, they know. And yeah, and yes, they absolutely do laugh. Uh, I know for a fact that they do uh, because I know. Um, look, uh, and this is like, I, I mean, I like I can't help but sort of chuckle at it because it's so silly and it's just so, I mean, it's just parody, right? But like. But it's also sad because, you know, Donald Trump has manipulated something so precious, so beautiful. You know, you're like the, the, the person who, you know, Jesus tells the parable of the man who finds a treasure buried in a field. And the man puts the treasure back and he goes off and he sells everything he owns and then he comes back and he buys the field because nothing else matters anymore nothing else matters he found the treasure and now he just has to buy the field and that treasure is what Christians have found and to Trump it's just a and to some of these other people it is a that treasure is just a tool. It's it's a it's a weapon. It's currency to be exploited, and uh, it's just I think sickening, really truly sickening to see good people. And let's be clear: most of these folks, they are really good people. They have good hearts, and they're earnest, and They've been lied to and they've been manipulated and they probably haven't been nearly as discerning as they need to be. I'm not letting them off the hook, but they have been systematically lied to and uh, their fears have been artificially exacerbated and their grievances have been nurtured and their resentment has been uh, has been weaponized. And uh, the end result is a just a, a a gravely diminished witness for the god that they claim to follow the the god that they claim to be all sovereign and all powerful and you know the treasure that they sold everything else for suddenly it's not a treasure anymore yeah at least not to anybody looking from the outside they don't see, I mean, they, 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 they don't see, they don't look at these folks and see, oh, wow, they really believe in, in, in something they sold out for it completely. Um, at least not in terms of their faith. Maybe they think yeah. about, you know, that in terms of something else, which is really yeah. sad. It's funny. Yeah, I, I took note of uh, one of the guys you describe in the book. Uh, his, he goes by the name of Jim Wright. Uh, and you described this, um, I forgot if it was you who was talking to him. I think it was you who was talking to him. And then uh, Francis Collins uh, got brought up. And he knew, oh, I know all about Francis Collins. And he, you know, harvests baby parts to do his, you know, whatever. Um, 
there was a part of me that it, it is cringeworthy on one level, but I, I, not that I know that Jim Wright, but I know Jim Wright. I love Jim Wright. My heart goes out to Jim Wright. I have Jim Wright in my Bible study. You know, I, I like we raised our kids in classes that we were attending for a decade plus with Jim Wright. You know, so there's a part of me that really loves that dude. And I, I'm brokenhearted about where his gaze has fallen upon and his beliefs are kind of um, shaped by. So there's so much more, frankly, that I could I, we could do this literally for hours. I'm. I'm on page two of, I'm kidding you not, I have 17 pages of notes. <laughs> so we could do this for hours. I mean, I, I want to get into the Trump conversion experience. I want to talk about David Barton and the influence he has on the Speaker of the House now. And um, But I do, before we start to wrap it up, who who do you hope, who do you think is the audience of your of the new book? And who who do you hope is the audience of the new book? I think that much of the audience for this book will be folks who think that I am coming to clean house in the evangelical church, who think that I have the, uh, the receipts and a list of the dirty deeds and that uh, there's going to be a reckoning and that I'm going to uh, make sure that all accounts are settled uh, by the, by the end of the epilogue. Um, Who I hope reads the book are the people who don't know Jesus. Mm. And, and let me explain something because my sense is that there are going to be a lot of those people who come for the carnage, who who are distrustful of the church, and, and they may themselves be part of the church, by the way. Like, I, I've gotten lots of letters in the last couple of weeks from people who are Christians and who are members of churches, but who are who have had it up to their eyeballs with all the craziness and the corruption and the idolatry, and they want to see the house cleaning. And so they're going to buy the book, right? But then I think at the same time, there are lots of people who are unbelievers who are just interested in the subject matter and they think that I'm a good reporter. And so they just want to see, you know, me uh, wreak havoc here. But what's really important, Corey, that I would say is in my line of work, you're shining light into the darkness. Now, when you shine light into the darkness, you are going to expose, right? You're going to expose what is false and what is wrong. But you're also going to illuminate. You're going to illuminate what is true and and what is right. And so what I really hope is that a lot of people who might buy this book for one set of reasons might start reading because... They're just like giddy about seeing the comeuppance for the evangelical movement. Again, C.S. Lewis said that we know what a crooked line looks like because we've seen a straight line. And I hope that what these people see is that Jesus is the straight line. And that what I'm pointing to here is something that's gone terribly wrong, but that there's also something perfect 
and perfectly right that I'm inviting them to see. And I hope that it's both. Um, and, and even if there's just one person out there somewhere in the world who uh, finds their way to a relationship with Jesus because of this, then that will have been entirely worth it for me. Mm. Yeah, it's not the answer I expected, but it makes total sense. Uh, because you, you do cover uh, many accounts of this sort of contentious mindset that there's us versus them, there's winning and losing, or what's the uh, what's the way that Liberty put it? Um, w- winning souls for Christ or something like that? that yeah, it's all champions for Christ. Champions yeah. for Christ, yeah. But your voice or your participation isn't in that contest, isn't in the win versus loss. You're, you're, you're not even operating at that level. So in a way, it is reflective of Christ. Christ was like, Okay, y'all are going to be surprised that my uh, path, you know, my my path to victory is through the cross, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, yes. So it's it's just completely something that everybody who was talking about it at that time, you know, the zealots and the Pharisees and the Essenes, they were all trying to look at Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible and Torah and the the writings, and they were trying to figure out what does Messiah look like, and Jesus comes along, and he's like. It's not what any of y'all think. <laughs> so, yep. um, uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's exactly, no, man, that's exactly, our, our understanding of these things is so limited and so finite. Yeah. Which is why, at the end of the day, we're called to be humble, right? We're, we're called to knock, and and the door will be opened to us. But um I looked up that painting, by the way. What an interesting painting. And I couldn't tell. I don't know if you've looked at it closely enough. I forgot the name of the painting off the top of my head. I couldn't tell. Yeah, was he wearing Was he wearing sandals or was he barefoot? Was a Christ figure barefoot? I don't think. Well, I'm looking at the copy in my office. Unless it's cut off prematurely, which I don't think it is. I don't think you can see his feet. At least not. You know what? I'm going to look it up while we're talking. Yeah, I, I saw a couple um, different versions of it. Uh, that is so interesting. Because you, so, somebody, uh, you said at one point that uh, somebody knew knew you were a faker because you you might wear sandals or something. You made a reference to sandals. So when I look, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm. Let's see. Oh, I can't tell. Mine, mine actually is. My frame is cut off below yeah. his lantern, but above his feet. I can't tell if he's wearing sandals or not. Interesting. There could was, be a whole. There could be a whole theology podcast dedicated to that one. There you go. All right. Well, I have a couple more questions, and then we can wrap it up. This is the TPNR question, and you've been answering it in a a way, uh, and and a lot of your work is is an answer to this question. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who think differently than we do, who grew up differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, and get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Boy, is it even possible? I yeah. mean, <laughs> listen, I want to hope that it is. Um, I do. I really am a believer. Like I, I've spent a lot of time just traveling to different parts of this country and I, I really, I sincerely still believe that most people are pretty normal 
and are not defined by political identities um, in their everyday lives. Now, the caveat I guess I would offer is um, all of the sort of the, the ecosystem that we are now living in is designed to sort of force those identities onto us in ways that I think sociologists are going to be studying for like centuries to come. Like we've entered into a period of human history that's just completely different than anything that's come before us. And I'm talking like the last 10, 15 years, like yeah. social media, internet technology, connectivity, um, AI now, like all of it. Like it, we're just, we're, we're, we are through the looking glass in a lot of ways. So I think that we can talk about, politics and religion without killing each other. Um, but we probably have to be creative in thinking about the ways we do it, uh, the, the mediums, the ground rules. Um, you know, like when you talk to uh, a friend or a family member who's just completely fired up about something or someone and they're just you know they're they're just um they are zealous <laughs> maybe overzealous um i think maybe that conversation starts with some kind of ground rules around the dialogue and like w one thing that my dad said to me uh, when i was a kid that has always stuck with me is like the minute that you go ad hominem, the discussion is over, right? Like there, there's just no, like if you're trying to persuade someone to see your point of view or if you're just trying to establish an argument that you think makes sense and, and, and uh, you want the other person to see that, like the minute you go ad hominem to the man, like then it's just... So the tricky thing, as I talk about in the book, with specific to Christianity and to Trump is like, and to my dad, is like some of the really weird, painful parts of my relationship with my dad before he died was when we would talk about Trump, for example. And my dad wasn't like a big Trumper, but he voted for him and then he like really internalized it. Like when you would criticize Trump, you would criticize, he felt like you were criticizing him, even though I wasn't. But it became like this ipso facto, you know, uh, transferred of property thing where. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was because he was insecure, not even insecure. I think it was because he felt like um, a certain guilt about voting for Trump and because he knew that he was just an immoral person and not the kind of uh, leader that he'd always said, you know, character is a prerequisite for political leadership. And suddenly now he's voting for this guy. And so that was there was some tension in our relationship over that. And I guess the point I'm making is that even though I never went ad hominem with my dad in those conversations, um, he interpreted it as ad hominem, even though I was talking about Trump. And so that's a roundabout way of saying, I wish I could put a bow on this in a really sunny side up way, Corey. But like, I have a pretty bleak outlook on our ability to have really healthy, constructive dialogue around some of these really divisive issues because it seems more and more as though, even though a lot of us are 
are, are pretty normal still and and um, not like political animals. We are living in an environment where sort of all of the pressure points, all of the incentive structures, all of the environmental factors are kind of pressing us into conflict and not into just like one-on-one who am I and who are you conflict, but this sort of like tribal guilt by association corporate conflict. And um, that's hard. That's really, really, really hard. I mean, just in the last few weeks, the Israeli-Palestinian stuff is like has given us a new window into this. Like the the, the group think and the um, the inability of individuals to sort of pull out of uh, of of kind of weird tribal, almost cult-like um, captivity. That's concerning to me, yeah. and I would be lying if I told you that I saw a kind of quick or easy way out of that. Because I think it's like a defining challenge for like my kids and their generation. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you make some really, really um, important, apt points uh, that a lot of the conversations I find myself in, I have to spend a good amount of time on uh, peeling back the assumptions that kick into gear based on one or two data points that my conversation partner is assigning to me. You know, whether it's the shade of my skin or the color of my hair or the fact that I'm married to Miss Lisa or that I'm from Jersey originally and living in Southern California. It could be any number of things, but there's this thing that Monty Guzman talks about as, um, oh, what I think of it as dominoes, but she calls it something else. But it's like you, you learn one thing and, oh, well, now I know everything I need to know about you. So you, yeah. I end up uh, peeling back, having to peel back a lot of that before we can ever actually get to any of the substance. So, uh, yeah, some really um, ad hominem. I think that that is at the root of it. That, but I, you know, to to uh, just out of fairness to your dad, a lot of talk to this day isn't just about Trump. A lot of times, it's assigned to anybody who's ever supported him, as if you couldn't have. Like you, you had to have come out of the womb already having all of the right answers as opposed to grappling with, wow, well, I believe in these things. These things are very important to me. This is how I've practiced my faith in, in terms of what I vote for and who I vote for. And now here's this dude who's like the opposite of all the virtues that I believe in, a, you know, the fruit of the spirit kind of a thing. And, you know, allowing somebody the opportunity to grapple with that. But, you know, so some of the talk in the public square is assigning all of Trump's failings, all of Trump's anti-virtues to the people who ever even remotely supported him. So, yeah, that, that's a whole other... No, I I, you're, you're exactly right. And I, I try to go out of my way. Like It's like the third or fourth page of the book. Maybe not even. It might be like the second page of the book. And, and kind of trying to describe how, you know, there's no easy answer to this question of like, well, why do these evangelicals support Trump? It's like, okay, well, we're talking about tens of millions of people. So <laughs> it's a pretty complicated question. And, you know, you can kind of map these folks across a vast spectrum and understand that some of them... Sure, they're like reactionary hypocrites and they are like just people that you really cannot get to a place where you can have anything resembling a rational dialogue with them because they're just not, you know, they're, they're not rational or respectable political actors. Um, and there are people at the far other end of the spectrum who 
voted for Trump. They voted for Trump twice because yeah. and they felt completely nauseous both times. But and, and they never defended him once. But they just felt like the issue of abortion alone was just enough that they had like they just felt compelled, you know, that they would live with the, the, the guilt of it, but that they couldn't in good conscience vote for somebody who was pro-abortion. Um, you know, that's like. I, I get it, and we have to be able to to view people holistically and try to be charitable with our assumptions. Um, you know, I've told people this story before, but um, I have we have a really dear family friend who is prone to saying some kind of like just like bizarre and provocative things, especially politically and like during COVID and about vaccines and about Trump and all just like stuff that as a reporter, if I met him and did a man on the street interview for 15 minutes, I would walk away and be like, wow, that dude's crazy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But what you don't know about that dude is that he saves all of his money He's a he's a he's an older guy. He's a bachelor. He sa- he he lives like the most meager existence possible. He saves all of his money, and several times a year, he goes to South America and builds orphanages. Mm. And he's done this for decades. And he's like single handedly like helped raise all these like orphaned children because of because of all the work he does. He ra- makes all this money doing his contracting work. He's a he's a like electrician handyman guy makes all this money doing all this contracting work, then goes over there and builds orphanages for kids. Doesn't like, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want credit for it. Doesn't boast about just like, but that's what he does. Right. Yeah. And so you would never know that if you spent 15, 20 minutes with that person, just talking about Trump, talking about COVID, talking about masks or vaccines or black lives matter or whatever. (laughs) Right. But like, how do we zoom out from that and try to, if we believe that, humanity is made in the image of God, then that person is an image bearer of God. And, uh, you know, that transcends who they voted for. It transcends their cultural habits or their weird, you know, uh, you know, points of view on certain things. And like, and I need, and I, and I have to train myself every day, Corey, to, to think that way, to try to get beyond that stuff because it's hard. I mean, it's really hard, especially when you spend time around people who are like just straight up radicals. And yeah. I've spent a lot of time with those people. It can be very challenging to pull back from that. Um, and that's something that I've got to work on myself. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Last question. One piece of business and, and we'll uh, get you get you on your way. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Who's your favorite guest you've ever had on this podcast you know besides I should, me yeah but, well honestly like you're, you're you're up there and i'm not just blowing smoke up your ass i just uh, because i i have wanted to talk to you ever since i saw that um there was a piece you wrote and i've been following you a lot more closely since uh how politics poisoned the evangelical church i think it was spring of 22 uh but i yeah. i've been familiar with you but when i saw that piece i'm like i i just got to read everything this dude writes so you're definitely up there, but um, you know there's quite a few other folks that I would put at the top of the list. I mean, Pete Weiner and John Roush have become uh, buddies of mine, and, and that's just one of the coolest things about doing this program. That guys whose work I've been following for years, 
Um, I mentioned Monty Guzman. I've learned so much from her. She's a great journalist, great writer. And she wrote a book that uh, came out almost exactly a year ago called I Never Thought of It That Way that addresses exactly the problems I'm trying to explore on this program. So there are mm. some. But I have to say, the person that I wrote down when I, when I was conceiving of, of this show, um, I wrote down a list of dream guests. And the number one person was David Brooks. And I got to have him on the program a couple weeks ago. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, it was it was so cool, but like I'm afraid that it went completely differently than I thought it would. <laughs> I ended up literally crying on the interview with him. He was so gracious because I there was one sensitive part of his book, a chapter in his book that that hits very close to home for me that I didn't want to talk about on the recording. But David, being who he is, he asked me about it, and I just water you know waterworks man. So that was one part. <laughs> Well, now I feel like a failure for not making you cry. <laughs> you can only pitch the ball, man. You can't make me swing. So, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, that's David funny. Brooks was a real was a real treat. But there's any number of others. I've become friends with some of the folks. Um, you know, there's a lady named Lisa Sharon Harper uh, that I, I've become dear friends with her and produce her podcast now. Um, so there there have been so many great relationships that I've I've forged in doing this. Uh, but yeah, so but David Brooks. That's when I when I saw one of your kids was named Brooks. I thought, oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I do like David, but no, uh, no. I I don't uh, I don't name my kids after columnists as a rule. <laughs> okay. Maybe reporters, but not columnists. Yeah, yeah. Well, David and I have so much in common because he came to Christianity. He grew up observantly Jewish, became a Christian later in life, as did I. And his sociological, the, the, the lens that he looks at things like politics and everything else sociologically really appeals to me. So much of his, um, uh, his political and social positions uh, align very closely with where I end up. Or maybe I end up there because I take his, um, his thinking so seriously. But yeah, that's, if I had to name one, that, that would, I'd have to admit that that would be the one. Are you going to ask me who my favorite kid is next? Because I do have one. No, no, I can't do that. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm right. not going to get you in trouble like that. <laughs> um, fair enough. So what is the best way we can follow you, find the new book, your other writing in the Atlantic, and all the great work that you're doing? Yeah, well, uh, I try to keep my website uh, somewhat regularly updated, and that's just bytimalberta.com. And then I'm on Twitter, just at Tim Alberta, and that's easy enough. To find me there, and um, the book is released December fifth, and you can get it at Amazon or you can get it at a great local bookshop near you, and uh, hopefully it'll find its way under a few Christmas trees. I think there there will be some folks, uh, especially given the season, who will be interested in, in reading it. I hope December fifth. That's the day this episode will be coming out. The reason I remember that is because it's not only Walt Disney's birthday, it's my brother's birthday and and my grandfather's birthday. May he rest in peace. So it was an easy date to remember when that uh, when that book's coming out. Um, Tim, this was really this was really awesome. You did not disappoint. Uh, ho hopefully, the way that your your lions will not disappoint for the remainder of the year. So thanks yeah, for doing this, man. Jinx it. Well, <laughs> hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, you know, I'm no David Brooks, but I did my best. So <laughs> I, 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 next time, next time somebody asks you this question on your podcast, it had better be like one A and one B, like Brooks and Alberta. You, know? you can count on it, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, um, if you're ever in SoCal, uh, you. I, let, let me buy a dinner or a beer or something. Uh, I, I would love to make sure that this is not the last time we hang out. 
Uh, it's been yeah. a, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you. Yeah, you got a deal. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We are super easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us, where you can find me, at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E. S is in Sam, at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week. Thank you.